The doc is in, and there's no need to stay in the waiting room for this episode of Health 411. Join Dr. Jonathan Karp as we discuss topics from health insurance to personal diet and exercise to up-to-date conversations in the healthcare industry and more. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Rider University. Now, let's see what the diagnosis is for this week's episode of Health 411. 107.7 The Bronx, 107.7 TheBronc.com, proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are recording today from the remote Bronx studios at Ryder University, and I'm Professor Jonathan Karp. This Health 411 program is presented by the Rebovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and the Ryder University Health Studies Institute. In Health 411, we discuss a variety of issues affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the politics of health and healthcare. Our goal is to expand knowledge and perspective. Today, Isaac Harris, our producer and I, are going to have a conversation and we're going to talk about gene therapy and the use of gene therapy to give sight back to people who have lost their sight. Um, and today's discussion was stimulated by a recent article that was published in a um, in a journal called Nature Medicine. And the title was Partial Recovery of Visual Function in a Blind Patient After Optogenetic Therapy. And if anybody's looking for a news, uh, sort of a non-scientific news summary, there's a, a, an article in Science News that came out, a gene-based therapy partially restored a blind man's vision. And that has a lot of people excited being able to uh, restore vision in somebody who is blind. Um, and at the same time, that being excited, there's also some anxiety over the ideas of a gene-based therapy and what that means. And, and gene therapy sometimes scares people. So we are going to have a conversation today and sort of put those things in perspective to give people an idea of what the future may hold or what might be out there. So hi, Isaac, how did I do introducing our, our topic for today? You did a great job. And I'm very <laughs> interested about it too, because I feel like we've touched on other papers discussing gene therapy. But not like not specifically focused on gene therapy, but talking about how genetics may work and may factor in um, different and different type and forms of medicine. Yes. So and or therapies per se. So I'm I'm very excited to go through this uh, paper with you, Dr. Karp. Okay, so what's interesting about this particular kind of paper, and then you're using the words um, gene-based therapy, there's a specific technique, a certain kind of gene therapy that they're, they're using in this paper, it's called optogenetics. And optogenetics is a little bit different than the kinds of gene therapy that we have discussed on previous uh, Health 41 radio shows. But mm -hmm. we're going to go, we'll go through that and we'll explain the similarities and the differences. We are also going, you know, I, I, I still am a college professor. So we're going to, before we go forward, we are going to take a step back and I'll talk a little bit about the anatomy of the visual system. 
um, and different kinds of blindness and what's going on about certain kinds of blindness may be treatable by the kind of optogenetic manipulations that are that this research is talking about and some may not be. And so we'll talk about those differences. So we are going to try to do sort of an overview to give people an appreciation about what is uh, real and what is not real. So the myths versus reality uh, about some of the potentials and this research, this cutting edge research that is um, that is that is that is being done. Um, and uh, is there, do you have any questions like right off the bat that you wanted to start with before I sort of I launch into professor mode? Uh, I guess like if anything, I guess the one question is um, coming with what actually, no, I actually don't think I have any for the first time. I actually don't have any questions right <laughs> off. I was thinking about it. And I'm like, wait, wait, no, let him let him set him oh, up. Let him set up. We're, we're gonna have to tell your family. Isaac is speechless. It, it happened. <laughs> it finally happened. Yeah, I'm actually speechless this time. Okay, so let let's take a take a step back before we move forward and talk about what's going on in this this particular paper and this kind of research and what the therapeutic potentials may or not be. Um, and in order to do that, we need to start talking a little bit about the visual system. And I know we've had shows, we've talked about the differences between sensation and perception, where sensation is sort of the registering in the context of the visual system, the sensation is the registering of photons. And then those photons are converted by your body, by, the, by certain cells in your eye, into signals your brain ultimately we understand. So light information, photons or electromagnetic radiation um, comes into your eye, it hits cells in your eye, and we will talk about some of those cells in just a bit because they're understanding the different cell types is important for this paper. And ultimately your eye converts that electromagnetic radiation into um, nerve impulses, so electrical activity and neurotransmitters through a multisynaptic pathway makes, um, it's makes it two different areas of the nervous system. Um, the areas that are gonna be involved with what we're gonna call uh, perception involve what's called primary visual cortex, which involves the occipital lobe of the brain and the um, um, visual association areas, which are the peripheral areas around the occipital lobe, which is the distal lobe of the brain, and then your brain generates an image and information spreads out to other areas of the brain. That is sort of the normal process of visual processing, sensation and perception of visual information. Now, sometimes different things along that pathway go wrong. If you lose any of those transduction areas or transduction events leading up to perception, or even in, if you lose a sub area of visual association areas, people can go effectively blind. And there's different kinds of blindness. Not all, bl you know, vision is not just it's on or it's off. Some people are colorblind. People are colorblind because they lose the ability to detect certain wavelengths of light. And so they become, become unable to distinguish, let's say, red and green because of different wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation. Other people have lost. Um, the ability to see certain areas of their visual field, because maybe that area of their brain has been damaged um, and they, they lose that. Some people lose the ability to detect motion, color, a whole bunch of things can go wrong that lead to different kinds of blindness. One kind of blindness is related to um, a disorder called retinitis pigmentosa. 
this is a disorder um, that causes the cells that are in your eye, in the, the retina, the back wall of the cells that light comes through, these are the cells that collect light information. The main families of these cells are called rods and cones. In people who have retinitis pigmentosa, what happens is first the rods start to die and the rods are the, the cells that um, sort of determine the, the, the presence or absence of a visual light um, kind of thing. And then there's cones that are, both of these are named by what they're, they're shell shape. The cones are a kind of cell that detect these different wavelengths that, that give you color, color kinds of vision. And so in somebody who has retinitis pigmentosa, first the rods start to die and then the cones start to die. And what happens ultimately at the end of that, the ability to transduce information to the areas of your brain is lost. And when that happens, people effectively go blind. And, they, and as these cells die, you lose the ability to transduce light information into a signal your brain will understand, and you do start, you, you, you go blind. Um, it's known that the, 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 this is a multi-genetic, I've seen estimates from anywhere 50 to 70 genes are involved with the death of these rods and cones. Um, this is a disease that's not treatable. Um, luckily, it's a pretty rare disease, but some people do have um, retinitis pigmentosa. And I talk about this because the patient that was used in this article where they used a gene-based therapy to partially restore blind man vision was a long-term sufferer of retinitis pigmentosa who had had this disease for 40 years and he was effectively blind um, at the start of these studies. And they used a genetic technique called optogenetics to basically restore this pathway and get it going again. Um, and that's what we're gonna talk about today. Any questions on that? Well, I guess the question was, I'm, I'm curious to see, well, maybe this might sound redundant, but if the, rod, if the rods and cones are dying and that's what, that's what effectively starts blindness, is that more hereditary or that only occurs just with something like, is that, is that more hereditary? I guess that's the question I'm trying to get. Oh, at. okay. So yeah. in, in in this case, I don't I don't think ret, uh, uh, retinitis pigmentosa is a hereditary hereditary disease. Other than the fact that their genes are involved with the cell death, I do. I'm pretty sure there is no environmental cause of this. So okay. I don't think they know what causes this this particular disease. Yeah, I was just but, curious. But what is known is, is these cell types start to die. That yeah. that 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 happens for sure. Mm -hmm. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how these researchers, through a history of using this genetic manipulation, um, and why people should not be scared as if people who might have this kind of therapy are going to have like three-headed children or something like that. It's not that kind of genetic manipulation. And we'll be right back um, after we take a break for some underwriting announcements to continue this conversation on Health 411. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. 
We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. One zero seven seven the Bronx, one zero seven seven the Bronx.com from the remote Bronx studios. Welcome back to Health Four One One. Isaac and I are having a conversation about the idea that people may be able to use a gene-based therapy to partially restore vision in somebody who has gone blind to other no fault of their own. And we're talking about a, a, a patient who had retinitis pigmentosa, which is a uh, debilitating disease for which there is no cure, where the light collecting cells in the retina, the rods and cones die. As a consequence of that, as the cells die, the, 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 the visual pathway no longer sends information about the visual world up to the brain, up to the cortex, the occipital lobe of the brain. And as a function of that, people go blind. One such person who is blind, and this is what was participated in a study. The study was done on um, a man who was first diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa when he was uh, in his late teens, about 18 years old, and has had this disease for 40 years and was quite functionally blind. The paper reports that he could probably could detect sort of the presence or absence of light, but he was unable to see objects. He was unable to navigate his visual world. He was, um, he, he was functionally blind. Mm-hmm. And he volunteered to be in a study. Now, what's important that I need to point out is that the study he volunteered to be in was part of a scientific process. It did not come like just out of the blue. The techniques that we're going to talk about, these optogenetic techniques, where this is not the first time that they were ever used. Um, it's the first time they were used, you know, in a in a in a human. But there have there is a body of research research going back 15 years or so where people have used optogenetics to change the way cells and, and, and various organs of the body, including the brain, work. And before we talk about what they did, let me just say what optogenetics is and how optogenetics is different than gene editing um, or knockout and you know, turning genes on or turning genes off. Optogenetics is a very interesting technique that comes out of the basic science that people, from people who study things even like bacteria and algae. Some bacteria and algae have the ability to collect information about light too. Things like algae might use light information to harness energy. But what that means is they have pigments, they have proteins in, inside of them that respond to different wavelengths of light. And that basic science has been discovered and people have used uh, these different light collection proteins in ways, and that the punchline is people can take these proteins that come from other organisms that, that respond to light, that collect, to collect or measure, or somehow respond to light, let's say. You can put these proteins in, um, in a non-infectious or a non-dangerous kind of virus. And what is a virus? A vi- not all viruses are like the um, COVID-19, right. HIV, <laughs> or herpes or you know any of this you know um, any of those kinds of viruses there are some relatively benign viruses but they all work sort of the same way the hallmark of a virus is it's basically a it's 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 sort of a 
uh, a genetic material syringe. What viruses do is they attach to cells, right? And it could be human cells or other cells, and they inject the contents that's inside of them, their genetic material, into host cells. All viruses sort of do that. And there's a kind of virus called an adenovirus or adeno-associated virus. There are a whole family of these things, and they have names that are numbers and decimal points and letters. But these adenoviruses are a tool that people have used um, to be able to inject proteins of their choice, genetic material of their choice, into host cells. This technique that we're talking about is called optogenetics because if you take some of these light sensitive proteins and you put it into a virus and then inject the virus into a target area, the virus or an adenovirus can inject that genetic material in to target cells. If everything works right and the cells are not damaged by the virus or the injection of the genetic material, the cells, the host will start to express the proteins for, or the proteins based on the genetic material that was in the virus, they'll start to express those proteins in the cells itself. So in the case, this is a genetic manipulation, it's called optogenetics, because the idea is you take the genetic material for these light sensitive proteins, you put this light sensitive genetic material in a virus, the virus in injects that genetic material into cells. Those cells then express the machinery of the cells which is the way viruses work all the time, now use that genetic material. And in this case, they use a genetic material that is an ion channel that is light sensitive. What that means in terms of neurons is when, the, when this, these light sensitive proteins are now expressed as ion channels, when light hits these cells, those ion channels are going to open or close. Why is that important in the context of what we're talking about here? It's important because in order for neurons, which are experts in communication, to fire action potentials, right? They, right. electrical activity, action potentials, happen because ions flow in and out of the cell, the plasma membrane of the neurons. That's why electricity can flow in a living organism. It's charged particles that happen to be ions. So what we've Using this idea of opto, light-sensitive genetic material, you can insert light-sensitive proteins into neurons. Then if light hits those neurons, it's going to let ions in or out of the cell. Now, depending what ions there are, it will either make that cell fire an action potential or inhibit that cell from firing an action potential. In this case that we're using here, we're using an ion channel that's going to let ions into a neuron that's going to cause it to fire an action. Wow. Am I capturing it in a way that in, in the segment makes sense to you, Isaac? You, you are, yeah, you are. And I do have one question for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So with that being said, when you, when it, when you inject the, the viral of like the genetic coding of the cells that are dying, how are we gonna go into on how fast it kind of does it like how fast does it regrow after like injection? I guess. Yeah, in well, yeah, that's part. That's part of one of the things we'll talk about um, in this case of the uh, of the study that we talked about. But in 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 different systems, depending what proteins you use, it takes a while 
for this genetic material in cells to be expressed on the cell surface and to become functional. This isn't a rapid process then. It's it's not it's not an immediate process in the in 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 just because you asked because you're, you're you're jumping ahead in the study that was that was done um, that we're going to talk about what they they did their first training things to see if this worked four and a half months after the injection and they the, they did training as far out as seven months. Mm-hmm. In, in 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 this in this with this person who who had this so in even in this human case it was months and months after a single injection that they actually did the behavioral training mm-hmm. in other experiments in um you know uh, non-human primates even in mice there's all different kinds of time courses uh, but but it's not immediate it takes a while for these cells to start to incorporate the genetic material that you've put in there to be, and and be, be functional have it change the, the the function of the cells if that makes mm-hmm. a, any, any sense it does cool it okay does. so what we have now is a blind man right we have a technique where we can inject lights the material for light sensitive proteins to be expressed in cells and scientists recognize that wow isn't this sort of cool that if we can get these dead or dying cells to be responsive to light again we might be able to activate that pathway from the eyes to the thalamus to the primary visual cortex, and we might be able to make a blind man see. That's sort of the idea behind this. And like I said, it wasn't right out of the dark. There's at least 15 years of literature of things leading up to this specific study that came out. Remember too, there are all different kinds of light sensitive proteins. Some of them are stimulated by blue light. Uh, Some of them are stimulated by other wavelengths of light. The one that was used in this particular study was a a light-sensitive protein called Crimson R, um, along with uh, one that was that that um, uh, was conjugated to a a, a red-sensitive protein. So the wavelength of light that was going to be activating these cells is something. It would be about amber color, around 600 nanometers, and we're going to talk about the process, the science of this particular study um, that made, made at least me think about Star Trek The Next Generation and the character Jordy. It was right? funny, it was funny because I was actually thinking along the lines. thought about Jordy too? Yeah, I thought about, <laughs> I, like, I, and I'm not, even, I'm not even playing with you. I really thought about Star Trek and Jordy. I'm like, mm, this, this yeah, is, absolutely. But, yeah. And, and, and they did use a form of goggles too. So we'll right. come back to Health 411 after some brief writing announcements, uh, underwriting announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx. And 1077thebronc.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Rebovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. 1077 the Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. Welcome back to the remote Bronx studios and our Health 411 program. 
Today, Isaac and I are having a conversation about the possibility that optogenetics, the idea that you can inject light-sensitive proteins into cells that are dying and sort of restore the function of those cells. And in this case, if those cells that are dying are cells involved with visual processing, you might be able to you know, allow a blind person to see. Um, if the reason that they are blind is that they lost the ability to convert light information into a signal that your brain can understand. Um, and so we're talking about this because there is a paper out in the literature in Nature Medicine, and it's getting a lot of press right now. And it's sort of the idea of you know restoring a blind man's vision, and that has has you know uh, you know has the idea of miracles. You know, people who do this are you know great religious figures. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean, <laughs> right. I, mean, I don't think any of the scientists who are using these um, these well these, these established techniques in the laboratory or consider themselves as religious figures, but they are, you know, allowing, you know, somebody who can't see, can't process image in the visual world to, to have a little bit of stuff, at least in a simple sort of way. Right. And, and one of the reasons I went on about optogenetics is because people listening should know that optogenetics is different than, you know, traditional gene therapy that either replaces a damaged or a faulty version of a gene with a healthy one, or it, you know, uh, 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 the idea that you might be able to identify a, a genetic mutation and repair it. Um, this is not what optogenetics is. Optogenetics is the idea that you can take a cell and insert a light-sensitive protein into it and have that light-sensitive protein work. In the case of neurons, the light sense of a protein is an ion channel. Neurons work by letting ions charge particles in and out through the plasma membrane. Rods and cones collect information about light, the presence or absence of light in terms of rods or color vision in terms of cones by responding to different wavelengths of light, firing action potentials. Those action potentials um, in the case of the visual system of rods and cones, um, send information um, to different layers of cells in the retina. And you have these rods and cones, which are going to send information to a layer of bipolar cells. And there's going to be all these sequence of cells. And eventually, the sequence of cells is going to hit something called retinal ganglion cells. Retin retinal, because they're in the retina, ganglion cells um, are the cells that are actually going to send information along the optic nerve to the, to the, the lateral, geniculus, that lateral geniculate nucleus of thalamus, to the superior colliculus, to the hypothalamus for circadian rhythms, and then ultimately send information to the visual cortex um, where visual um, uh, perception uh, takes place, uh, perception of the visual world. Now, What's interesting is that what they did in the scientific study using all the ideas of this technique of optogenetics in previous research is they injected an, adeno, an associated adeno, an adenovirus, a non-lethal kind of virus that had this crimson R protein genetic material inside of it into the uh, um, large chamber of the eye, that the, 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 what's called the vitreous chamber into the vitreous humor. 
and they injected this virus into the, into the, into the eye. And that virus, um, some of it targeted the retinal ganglion cells, which are the cells that are in, that are closest to the, the that make up the part of the retina that is adjacent to the vitreous chamber. The vitreous chamber, if any of you have gone fishing is, you know, the jelly filled thing that's, you know, when you squish an eye, you're nodding, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so they injected a little of this virus in there. I mean, this is a, not a dangerous kind of virus. So they were controlling the genetic material, right? And the idea was maybe these retinal ganglion cells will start to express these, these ion channels, you know, these light sensitive ion channels. And what they did in this particular study is uh, they had an idea of the time course based on experiments with non-human primates, based on experiments with mice um, and rats and neurons and all this sort of stuff. So the, 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 the general technique was not completely new. So they waited several, several months. And then they, in a sense, um, developed a technique where they could shine the wavelength of light that this protein channel, ion channel was sensitive to and see if, in a sense, if this patient's eyes would send signals down the optic nerve to the visual portions of the brain, mm -hmm. right? That's in a sense right. what they, they, they did. In order to do that, right, they had to design a, a special kind of, um, um, goggles, sort of, if you've ever seen those people play virtual reality kind of things, they wear these goggles. And this is what made you and I, Isaac, think about Jordy from Star Trek, the, <laughs> the next yeah. generation. Jordy wore these goggles that sort of went around, you know, the front part of his head. And then this, these goggles, you know, basically allowed a blind man to see. In this case, they had these special goggles that um, only projected the, the amber wavelengths of light into this, this person's eye, one eye or both eyes, so they could sort of control that, uh, that this crimson R protein was going to respond to, right? So by wearing these goggles, you didn't let all the visual light come in, all the light, you basically had this device that would scan the external world, you know, back and forth scanning, and then convert those images into these amber, I think it's like, you know, 595 or so, 600 nanometers, wavelengths of light. And so what they did with this patient, and I don't know, Isaac, if you had a chance to look at some of the videos, there's some online videos associated. Of I looking. haven't had a chance to see the videos, but I'm very curious. Yeah. Um, what, they, what they basically showed was uh, two things that were actually cool about this paper. They showed the goggles, and I think there's some pictures of the goggles um, in, in, in the paper you and I both looked at, and that they sort of looked like some virtual reality goggles. Um, and they did that in patients who were wearing a skull cap so they could record EEGs, electroencephalograms. Um, and they did this because that visual pathway that I described earlier from the eyes to the visual areas of the brain is a well-described pathway. People have a pretty good idea of where information from the eyes is going to end up and the kind of uh, perceptions that come when different areas of the cortex 
are sort of um, activated. And that activation is measured in electrical activity of the neurons that are there. And EEGs, electroencephalograms, are ways of monitoring the electroactivity in those parts of the brain. So in a sense, just to review, they had a patient with retinitis pigmentosa who is functionally blind. They did, in only one eye, they injected um, a virus with, gen with the genetic material of light-sensitive proteins. They waited a while, and we, we know the light-sensitive proteins were expressed in some of the cells of the retina called retinal ganglion cells. Then they used this device, which had to be invented and built, that would scan, that the patient would wear, that would scan that and convert the external world into images of a, at a wavelength of a, that they care about, that, that these light-sensitive proteins are going to respond to, that crimson R is going to respond to. We would interpret that as amber, amber sort of light. Right. And then they had the patient wearing an EEG skull cap to try to figure out Right? Is this person's is this person's brain? Are visual areas of the brain being activated when they restored some function along this visual pathway? Right. Yeah. Now, that yeah, now that sounds cool. interesting because I got some questions that yeah, go ahead. Probably, go ahead. probably leading to the next segment. So, with that being said, with what was the image? I didn't get to see this in the paper, but maybe you could figure this out. What's the image that they actually tried to show? that amber wavelength or that just enough light to try to get the brain to activate? That, that's a really good question. They, they did a couple different things. Remember, they were just starting here. This is a, a trial study. So they did some things. They had something that looked like a um, sort of a, a rectangle, sort of like a tablet mm -hmm. that was large. They had a uh, sort of a computer tablet is what I, I'm talking about. They had a small sort of you know, gray colored rectangle. They also had some um, drink, small drinking cups that they had either like one drinking cup or two drinking cups. Um, and they had to identify in the external world. And the paper actually talked about um, after they did this, that we will talk about in, in a little bit more, they actually took the patient outside wearing these goggles to see if the patient could see the lines in a crosswalk you know, the painted lines between right. the streets, the kinds of things uh, that the idea was, can you take a laboratory experience and turn it into something that was functional for the patient, something the patient could understand? Make sense? Right. Yeah, and it makes we'll, a lot of sense. So we'll come back and we'll talk about these things after we break for some underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7 The Bronx. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part part-time options at writer.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 107.7 The Bronx. 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7 The Bronx.com. 
Welcome back to a remote recording session of 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp, and I am here with Isaac Harris, and we are discuss discussing a gene-based therapy that partially restored a blind man's vision. And what I did in the previous segment is I, saw, I think, I, hopefully, you know, I, I laid out an experiment um, on this one patient um, where a the optogenetic technique was used in one, one eye of this patient and using a specially designed pair of goggles and, and a skull cap, they had this patient, um, they basically tested to see if the insertion of this light sensitive protein into the retinal ganglion cells um, restored vision and what they did was they, they didn't just do it. They had some control groups. And there are, if anybody wants to look, there, there are videos of, of the subject in some of the test conditions. They had, for example, they had the, the subject sitting at a desk, you know, and, you know, they said, can you see anything? Um, he would say, no, not really. <laughs> and then they would put something on the table and they say, can you see it? And they would say, nope, I don't see anything. Um, and then they would do things like, um, put the goggles on, these specially designed goggles. And then they would like let, you know, turn on the goggles and, you know, let light come into the eye that had had this surgical procedure and, and ask him again, do you see anything? And then you could see, the, see this patient sort of, you know, turning his head a little bit to sort of scan the table, right? And while this device was turned on, it was fascinating. He was able to identify um, objects that were on the table. He was able to identify a large rec rectangle, a small rectangle, uh, some cups. Oh, you know, I forgot to mention also they had a, a bottle of hand gel. Wow. <laughs> you know, in the days, you know, kind of the out there. But while the device was turned on, he was able to find these objects on the table to identify them and roughly tell and reach out and tell where on the table these things were. What was interesting is they had a computer hooked up to, um, to these goggles and that was monitoring the scans that the goggles were doing. And you could see as he turned his head that he was able to recognize when the goggles scanned the area of the visual world where these objects were in. Wow. It was, it was, it was, it was sort of fascinating. If anybody wants to check it out, because you can see the computer images that are there. And that's why they based it, that's why they, they, they called the paper, you know, partial recovery of visual function on blind man after optogenetic therapy. Um, any questions about that, Isaac? Before well, I, I go on. I, I guess that my question about that because um, he can sense the goggles. So now when doing, when doing this experiment, and I, I don't know if now, bear with me if this isn't actually like true. I, I, understand, I get an understanding that when someone's partially blind or has some type of optical um, uh, impairment, the other sentence, the other sentence like probably like heighten. So by doing this type of therapy and even experimenting this is, I don't know if it was mentioned in the paper, does this like kind of dilute some of the heightened senses like hearing and like smell? Oh, no way to know at this point. That was not addressed in this paper. Right. This a paper was sort of a case study, sort of proof of concept kinds of thing. 
Um, but let me go where I thought you were going to ask about, because the yeah. other thing I described about the experiment was not just wearing of the goggles. Remember, the, the, the patient was also wearing the EEG skull Yes, cap. I, I meant to also go there too, because about <laughs> because if they're tracking the brainwave, so does it, is it immediate, is, are they tracking it immediately when it like, it starts like, like almost like a light bulb where it's like, yeah, all right, absolutely. you can feel like, bing, it's like, it's completely on. Yeah, and that's that's sort of what they found because the areas over the areas of the occipital lobe, remember primary visual cortex and near visual association areas that you would expect to be activated when a normal person would see objects on a table, relatively simple objects, were the same areas of this patient's brain that were activated. So wow. these pathways that were not being used Right, that were there, were the, and the, the 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 cortical appropriate brain pathways for vision were turned on by inserting this light sensitive protein into retinal ganglion cells. Wow! That's, so and it, that's the cool part. So, so it wasn't just the technique that, that they get these cells to fire, but it was the appropriate areas of this person's brain were activated, and that's why he was able to perceive these objects in his visual space. Wow, and, and that's incredible because it reminds me, now it goes back to the pun we were talking off, off, off during the commercial break, where it's like, it's almost essentially in a weird sense, but not exactly in the right pun metaphorical sense. It's like starting a car battery almost, or like launching or turning on a battery, if that's correct. Well, in, in a sense, but, the, but it's not just the battery. Where right. I'm going now, it's the wires coming from the battery, battery. Yeah, that, 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 that are going to the appropriate places. Now, batteries are a little bit different than the human nervous system because it, if, if you don't use a wire from a battery, the wire basically just stays there. Mm -hmm. If you don't use neurons, eventually neurons will atrophy and, and, and die, sort of a use it or lose it sort of thing. Right. In, in this guy's case, the neural pathways were still there after many, many years of being, you know, totally blind. And, and it wasn't, and what they did, what they remarked about in the paper, which was fascinating, is they didn't just do these laboratory tests. Like, can you see a large rectangle, a small rectangle, a, a cup or two cups or the hand gel? They took this patient out into the real world and turned on the goggles and said, can you see the lines on the crosswalk, right? Now, if you are right. a blind person, right? Being able to see the lines on a crosswalk is functionally relevant. It's functionally important. Being able to see a cup on a table, you could argue is a lot less functionally important to you. And right. one of the reasons that this article is getting, or this case study is getting a lot of press is because there are functional consequences that weren't just like under certain conditions in the laboratory. The idea is that, these goggles and this technique might have some applicability for somebody who has this kind of blindness. And I'm saying that because I want to segue to, to something unless you have any questions. No, you can segue because I think we're, I, I think I'm thinking the same thing you might be thinking. Okay. And so one of the reasons I set things up the way I did is to ask the question, is all blindness the same, right? Is everybody right. blind, blind? And the answer is no, there are different kinds of blindness. There actually is like, a, there's a kind of like legal blindness, which I think is what, 2,400 or something like that. It's, Last time I checked, I believe it was uh, 
2400 it's like yeah it's something really bad but these yeah. people are legally blind but they can in a sense function in the world in a, in a very blurry kind of world that's that's one kind of blindness and um if if you looked at some people like you or i wear glasses you don't but you know i have like i don't know tw uh, let's say you know somebody who has like 2040 vision or 2030 vision you know that's not you're not blind but that kind of thing can be corrected with corrective lenses wearing glasses or contacts right what we're talking here is not about visual distortions of the world based on acuity what we're not talking about here is people who go blind um, after having a stroke right people might have a stroke and they might have blind spots in their visual field they might lose their left receptive field or right receptive field um, we're not talking about that kind of, of, of blindness. Oh, and I should mention too, the parts of the occipital lobe that were activated were on the opposite side of the body from the eye that was tested. So the, ana the, ana the anatomy in this patient completely worked. Mm -hmm. um, we're not talking about people who go blind because of, of, of a deficit in the cells of their brain. This kind of technique would only that that's the perception part. It, it would only work in people who are who are blind because of the sensation aspect of going blind, the inability to convert light information into signals that the brain can understand. That's why a patient with retinitis pigmentosa was selected, because right. it's well known from basic science what cells are actually dying that leads to this kind of blindness. And what's really, really cool is by reinserting a light sensitive ion channel, you could, in a sense, wake these cells up. And that's why you're thinking of the dead battery kind of analogy. You're, you're sort of waking it up. Yeah, in a sense. Yeah. In a sense. And that's and, incredible. And that's, really, that's really, really cool. So maybe for things like, you know, retinitis pigmentosa, maybe for macular degeneration, um, maybe for those kinds of blindness to why people go blind, um, this technique has a lot of, um, a lot of promise, a lot of cool things going on. Right. And it's all about just asking the, the cells, uh, to say, wakey, wakey, <laughs> it's time to get up. So well, that, well, that's it. I mean, when yeah. you talk about the nervous system too, you know, um, you, 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 you are what your nervous system says you are. So mm -hmm. if you have cells of the nervous system, and I'm including cells of the eye in that, if those cells are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, you are functionally not, you, you lose that part of who you are. It's gone, you know? Um, and like I said, in this paper, they, they, you know, there's some functional consequences to it. They took this guy out in the real world and you could see things. I mean, not as, probably as clear as you could. There were some issues about, you know, him scanning the world and feeling a little bit dizzy from this technique um, for reasons that still have to be worked out. Nobody knows what, what those are yet. Um, but it's really, it's almost Jordy like who was wearing these right. in, in the Star Trek, you know, movies and TV show, wearing these visors, you know, that restored vision for a guy who was blind. That's pretty mm -hmm. cool. It is. It is, um, it is. Unfortunately, Isaac, I, I'd like to go on and say a little bit more, but we're running out of time. Um, this is 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. Isaac and I are recording from the remote Bronx studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of Rider University's effort to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of health, healthcare, and science in health 
in healthcare. We hope today's conversation has given you things to think about, about optogenetics and, and the visual system. If you have questions and or comments about this program, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. That was this week's episode of Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp. Tune in every Sunday at 10 a.m. to learn truthful information about your health and the healthcare industry. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Health 411 to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Rider University. We'll see you soon, only on 1077 The Bronx.